1: Today on New Books and Secularism, I have an entertaining, enlightening and humorous graphic narrative that tells the exciting story of the 17th century thinkers who challenged authority and contemporary thinking, sometimes risking excommunication, prison and even death to lay the foundations of modern philosophy and science and help usher in a new world. This unique book by dynamic father-son duo Steve and Ben Nadler is titled Heretics, The Wondrous and Dangerous Beginnings of Modern Philosophy. It follows the lives and writings of contentious and controversial philosophers from Galileo and Descartes to Spinoza, Locke, Leibniz, and Newton. Crisscrossing Europe as it follows them in their travels and exiles, the narrative describes their meetings and clashes with each other, their confrontations with religious and royal authority, and recounts key moments in the history of modern philosophy. Stephen Nadler is the William H. Hay II Professor of Philosophy and the E. U. Bascom Philosopher in Humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, specializing in 17th century philosophy. His books include Spinoza, A Life, which won the Corrett Jewish Book Award, and Rembrandt's Jews, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His son Ben Nadler is an illustrator and a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. They join me today to talk about their collaboration. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name is Carolyn Evans, and I'm joined today by co-authors Stephen and Ben Nadler to talk about their new book *Heretics: The Wondrous and Dangerous Beginnings of Modern Philosophy*. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having thank us. Thank you.
1: So this is a slightly different book than what we usually cover on this channel. It's essentially a graphic novel that tells the story of some of the major names in philosophy and their ideas as they grapple with understanding the nature of the reality, dating to the 17th century here. Uh, So you guys deal with some very complex ideas in the book, so I'll leave it at that simple description for now, and we can get to the meat of the ideas as we work our way through. Uh, We usually start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourselves and how each of you came to work in your field.
0: Um, so this is Stephen, and I'm a uh, professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I've been teaching since 1988, and um, my scholarship has always been in philosophy of the 17th century, um, and you go through the process of writing your academic, uh, academic books, academic articles, uh, and then at a certain point, you want to do something that will reach a broader audience, uh, and meanwhile, Ben had gone to art school, and after graduation, we thought it would be fun to do a project that combined both uh, my own work and his skills. And so um, we proposed to my publisher, um, who wanted uh, a kind of history of philosophy in the 17th century, well, we said, well, how about a graphic history of philosophy in the 17th century? And much to our surprise and pleasure, um, he said, yes, great idea. Go for it.
1: Fantastic. Ben, yeah, what about
0: I, you? I went to
2: school, uh, Rhode Island school of design to study illustration. Um, I wanted to do, I think children's quick illustration and, and approached me with the project pretty much pretty soon after I graduated, um, You know, it was my first real project after self-publishing some work and trying to break into the industry a little bit. It was my graduation gift to you. Yeah, thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. Uh, So let's start by describing what we have here. Uh, Give us the elevator pitch and tell us how you ended up deciding to work together on this project.
0: All right. So everybody knows about the 17th century. You have (laughs) Galileo, Descartes through Newton. Um, And this was the great century of philosophy, uh, including what we now call science, because in the 17th century, um, science was really just natural philosophy or philosophy of nature. Uh, So the book gives you uh, the broad view of what was happening in this brilliant century, uh, a kind of departure from the medieval way of looking at the world and really the beginning of the modern conception of the cosmos. Um, what is nature? What are human beings? Um, how do we know the world? What is the world made up of? How do we relate to each other? So the book covers um, both, you know, in a philosophically serious way, but also in a graphically engaging, accessible and humorous way, um, various issues in metaphysics, in political philosophy, in ethics, um, in Uh, scientific philosophy and so on, um, working through the various characters, the great and the not so well-known thinkers of the period, um, and especially their interactions. We try to put it all in in a personal and historical context to really make it read like a kind of novel or series of philosophical biographies.
1: So that raises the question for me, who do you have in mind as your target readership for a book like this one?
0: I think we're aiming as broadly as possible um, mm-hmm. at the very least sort of the educated adult reader, not, not an academic, not a specialist, certainly, uh, but the person who's curious about the history of philosophy and the history of science. Uh, but then as we're, working through the book, we realized that we could think even more broadly than that, that this would be a book that would be of interest, um, not just to college students who are taking courses in modern philosophy, although hopefully they'll also be reading the philosophers, but also high school students um, and, um, you know, teens who really have some kind of um, burgeoning interest in the history of philosophy. Because the the graphics encourage the,
2: the layperson to pick up a book maybe they wouldn't otherwise. That's you know has the word philosophy in the title that may be a little bit daunting
1: excellent yeah it does serve as a good illustration because it uh it really brings the story of these people's interaction mm-hmm. and kind of brings life to what i suppose might seem dry to some on the page right uh, it,
2: it humanizes other otherwise mythological uh type of figures
1: yeah exactly Great. Well, I'd love to hear about your collaborative process. Uh, Coming up with the ideas for illustrating such abstract metaphysical concepts must have been challenging.
0: Yeah, I think the the main challenge for Ben, um, which he can talk about in a minute, was taking these abstract ideas and giving them concrete visual presentation. Um, So we started out um, with me producing a text and that took quite a while because the initial draft where I guess the temptation is just to include everything, you know, um, was way too long, way too complicated. And so I, I came up with that. Ben read it. He said, no, no, this is, this is much too convoluted. Uh, this is too wordy. Uh, and so after several months, we had that kind of narrowed down to a text that would work well for a graphic book. And by text, I mean, both the, the narrative bands, um, the, the, the narration that tells you what's happening, plus the little dialogue bubbles and little asides. Um, and then when we had that down to a form we liked, um, I handed that over to Ben. And then his job was to take that, um, and he had carte blanche to do with it visually whatever he wanted to do.
2: It's it's a tricky balance because when he's writing the text, even when that text is finished, it's still, about, it's still just half the book. Um so you can't you can't be too colorful with your words. You can't describe too much, but you still have to get all your ideas across. So uh, that took definitely a few drafts. And then so I didn't really start working until I had a finished draft of the text. And I had to just draw uh, thumbnail after thumbnail throughout the whole book and send them along. The thumbnails were just sort of about What's going on in this panel? Who's in it? What's happening? What's represented, and how is it represented? And then we get on the phone and go
0: over every panel. He would send me an email where he has scanned the little uh, pencil sketches, and we talk about whether that worked, the geometry of the page, um, what things were appropriate. Everyone's, you know, it just says he had some veto power over the text. Um, I had uh, some veto power over certain aspects of the illustrations, although I think I rarely exercise that veto mm-hmm. um, and then we go over every single panel and in the end you had to do over 900 drawings for the book yes I did you oh sorry go on and so then when we had agreed on the pencil sketches um you know well, that's yeah the the what took the most time was after we had
2: settled on what was going to be on the page and then I just had um, to chain myself down to my easel and spend about a year, um, penciling, inking, coloring all by hand. All by hand. So he didn't see the, he didn't see what it was looking like really until the end when all the pages were.
0: Although you did, you know, once you had the hard pencils and even the inked ones, right, right. Um, there was nothing I could change at that point. But I still um, sent them along. Yeah, you sent them along. Yeah. But you know, it was really it's meticulous hard work for him because nothing got done on a computer until the coloring process. Um, The pencil sketches, then the hard pencils and the inking, literally dipping um, a nub, uh, a A metal nib, (laughs) metal nib into a a bottle of ink and inking the panels for 900 drawings. Some of them very detailed. Um, And then that got scanned into the computer Mm -hmm. and colored on, on Photoshop. Right. Probably the quickest part. And then you had to do the – then you inserted the text. And we were unhappy with the various fonts that we saw used in comic books. They all seemed very generic and not to have much personality. So Ben um, created his own font just by – I turned uh, my handwriting into a font. Right. We called it Heretica.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent. And you mentioned uh, in the acknowledgments, I think, that uh, Stephen, your wife, uh, Ben's mother, had the concept for the cover illustration. That's right.
2: We, yeah, she's we, refusing to take credit though. Right. Oh. Maybe
0: she's too proud
2: or too <laughs> so We I you know, the the cover was our the only time we
0: couldn't seem to agree. Yeah, that we we had went back and forth a lot on the various cover ideas. And then um Jane, my wife Ben's mother, just said, "Well, why don't you just show a philosopher thinking?" <laughs> and, um, so good.
2: yeah, we were yeah, we were overthinking it. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's great. So if we get, well, we'll start with uh, some of the content now. Um, You mentioned some of the bumps in the road for philosophy as it butted heads with the church in Rome at the beginning of the 17th century. And then you move on to address Descartes at more length And philosophers at this time seem to be grappling with some of the most basic questions of epistemology, as well as the role of the soul, or what we maybe would think of as consciousness in relationship to the physical world. So is that an adequate adequate description? Uh, Go ahead and tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So in in terms of the struggles of these philosophers with the authorities, um, I don't think it should be overstated too much, because it's not the, the old mythological picture of science versus religion or the church versus these secular thinkers doesn't really capture what was going on. The church was very supportive of science and philosophical investigation. They just set very stringent limits as to what would be acceptable, especially when philosophers um, crossed what the church authorities saw as the line, the dogmatic line. Um, and on the other hand, many of these philosophers were either um, members of, you know, um, Ordained, um, ordained ecclesiastics in the Catholic Church, for example, or they were just simply very religious people. Uh, Descartes saw part of his project as proving the existence of God. Leibniz um, was, as far as we know, a, a very devout individual. Uh, and so the, there wasn't a clear boundary here between the religious and the philosophical or the sectarian and the secular. But it was kind of a a, a lot of navigating uh, these boundaries, a lot of uh, compromises, a, a lot of paying fealty to uh ecclesiastic authorities. Um, but for the most part what happened in the seventeenth century was a departure from the old ways of looking at human ways of knowing, at human relationships to the world at god's relationship to the world um, and especially a kind of autonomy of nature even when god for some of these 17th century thinkers was deeply involved in the natural world um, the overall scientific project was to eliminate all sorts of mystical and spiritual powers from nature and see the operations of natural bodies as kind of machines functioning the way in which clocks work. And almost all of these philosophers bought into that general picture, although some also wanted to have God more intimately involved in the workings of nature than others.
1: Right. So where does Descartes' philosophy come in here?
0: Um, Descartes, um, you know, he's often singled out as the father of modern philosophy. And I, I think that's a little unfair, um, both to the way in which he related to previous philosophers, because nobody in the history of philosophy really starts out completely new. You, you, you have to pay your respects to what came before. And, and much of what Descartes says is, uh, in a kind of continuity with late medieval Aristotelian scholastic philosophy, uh, at the same time he asks, he asks questions that, if they had even if they had been asked before he he found new ways of going about answering them and so w- perhaps not the father of modern philosophy. I think Descartes played an extremely important role in instigating a, a new ways of doing philosophy, and much of the seventeenth century. Uh, especially the philosophers we look at in this book, um, much of 17th century philosophy had to deal with Descartes' thought in some way or another, either by finding ways to continue it and fix it and modify it and develop it, or uh, in opposition to Descartes' philosophy. So he really set the the tone and set the dialogue, set the terms of debate um, in many respects for 17th century philosophy.
1: So, Ben, tell us about uh, illustrating this section.
2: Um, well, I, you know, I was learning as I was working because I'm no
0: philosophy expert. And so, a lot of. I, I what, did send him a copy of Bertrand Russell's <laughs> History of Philosophy, but I don't think you read it, did you? <laughs> <laughs> a,
2: lot of context, a lot of context I was getting was from looking up all the re, collecting references, um, image references for the places that Descartes lived and, and the, the tools he used and the books that he read um and i think it maybe played a big part into creating a book for someone who's not so familiar because i had to because i had to uh myself learn about what i was illustrating it made it a little bit easier to illustrate for someone who is learning um so i i think that played a big part i had to collect a lot of art books look at a lot of paintings um Oh, maybe the hardest to find reference for was all of the all of the props they use. Um, you, you know, especially in the Spinoza chapter, the the tools he was using. Descartes' ideas weren't particularly difficult. I mean, once we sort of nailed down the idea of body and soul. You, you know, representing the soul with this wavy, blue, translucent copy of the
0: body—that um, was one of the, the challenges of how you know how are you going to illustrate the soul? Because one of the central features of Descartes' right. philosophy is this radical distinction between the body and the soul. So, if if the human, if if bodies, including the human body, are just matter, extended matter, um, with no spiritual powers. Um, And the soul, on the other hand, is a purely immaterial um, spiritual substance. Once you've separated these and you've removed the soul from matter, Mm -hmm. then nature can function like a a mechanical. But they still have to interact. But they still have to interact. And you have to find a way of illustrating. And this is, I think, a big challenge for you. What does a soul look like? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's not a bodily thing, so it doesn't literally look like anything. But you had to give it concrete (laughs) visualization. Right. And a lot of philosophers throughout the book, this division between body and soul becomes one of the recurring themes throughout philosophy in this period. Um, Has Descartes, in fact, so radically separated body and soul that he makes it impossible for them to interact or how can they even be united in a human being? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the philosophers... Um, And a lot of the um, illustrations try to picture the ways in which different philosophers saw the relationship between the body and the soul. And this is a very nice example of the way in which Descartes set the terms of debate for the rest of the century.
2: Because even if there's one concept, it's that concept
0: seen through the eyes of different people. Yeah, so one person's soul, one philosopher's vision of what the soul is like would be different from Mm what another philosopher's vision of what the soul is supposed to be like.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, that's why um, that's why I suggested it. To me, it seems like maybe the soul, as they envision it, is what we would call consciousness. I realized that they mm-hmm. had a religious uh, dimension, of course, to the soul. But um, as I was trying to come to terms with with the ideas that they were even thinking about, it seemed to me like this was it was consciousness, really, that they were struggling to try to to grapple with and. But because I was looking at it through a modern lens, with my understanding of biology being what it was, um, I was just seeing it in those terms. Mm, right.
0: Yeah. With, although with the difference that today, when we think of consciousness, um, we we don't think of it as an ontological item. We think of it as an as a process or as an experience. So, when I, if you were to ask me um, what's my consciousness, I would be I wouldn't be thinking of a thing. I'd be thinking of a kind of process and then trying to figure out what part of the body um, that process is located in. But for these early modern thinkers, um, the soul was a thing. It was a substance, um, and it was the place where consciousness uh, occurred, or it was the the subject of consciousness. But for Descartes, for example, in the meditations, um, the first thing he really discovers for certain is that he is a thinking thing. He is a soul. Uh, and then the question is, well, is there also a body? But first he looks at the soul and says, well, here are the various things that the soul does. And what he does is gives you a rundown of the various types of conscious experiences. Whereas today, um, you know, if you do think of consciousness as something distinct from the brain and its processes, you tend not to think of it as a thing or substance, but as just what it is that I mean, it's even hard to put into words. And a lot of philosophers today, they call themselves the new mysterians, uh, believe that um, on the one hand, it's wrong to think that everything is just matter. But on the other hand, um, it's wrong to think that consciousness is some kind of soul like substance. And so there's this sort of gray area, where it's really hard to describe what consciousness is, it sort of evaporates as you try to grasp it. Huh. That's why the comic book. That's why you need a comic book. Right. (laughs) Right.
1: right. (laughs) Excellent. You have to go out and buy heretics. All right. Um, So let's, let's move on next to uh, Thomas Hobbes. You briefly cover Mm. his theories about materialism as kind of similar to what we're talking about here. Um, And he also got into um, governance as well. And he promoted the idea of an absolute monarchy. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so um, Hobbes is mostly known now for his political philosophy, um, and you know there's still a great deal of discussion of how we should think about Hobbes. Is he somebody who saw absolute monarchy as the the um, the best form of government, or was he open to a, a democratic uh, sort of democratic form of organization? But really, what mattered for Hobbes was that there should be a single sovereign, whether the sovereign is a monarch or democratic body, uh, there should be a single sovereign who has absolute power. Um, and what really worried Hobbes was any kind of division of loyalty within a polity. So um, you can't, he, he couldn't abide the notion of having a political sovereign, but who had to share authority and power with the uh, say religious authorities. Um, the sovereign also had complete control over religion. In the state um, because what he feared most was any kind of return to what he he called a state of nature where there is no central authority and essentially it's as he says it's a a state of everybody for themselves war against all Um, and in such a condition he says life is nasty brutish and short and so the purpose of the state of of people coming together and through a covenant authorizing a sovereign to have full authority and power. um, This is the way to preserve life uh, and liberty.
2: Mm.
0: And I think that's, that sort of part of the book was relatively easy uh, for an illustrator to
2: capture. Yeah. A little bit more concrete in his ideas and not so ethereal the way he sort of, we sort of have him break down society. It, It also kicks off the sparring that, that begins to happen throughout the book.
0: The sparring between Hobbes and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a, he was a tough character, Hobbes, because he he took extreme positions. Um, in addition to this devotion to absolute sovereignty in the political body, he also believed that there were no immaterial substances. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was matter, and that has led many people to wonder whether Hobbes was um, truly an atheist. Um, did he believe that? There is no God, or if there is a God, God has to be a kind of body. Or when he says that everything is matter, does he mean everything in the created cosmos is matter, but maybe there's some kind of immaterial spiritual substance outside of it, which would be God? Um, My position seems, I think, is that Hobbes probably was an atheist Uh, All there is is matter. And even the human being, um, our conscious experiences are just motions in the body, For Hobbes,
2: It's funny. I remember asking you throughout the book whether how far did their belief in God take them through their argument and whether there were any true atheists.
0: Yeah, I think. But it seems like he gets the closest. He gets the closest. I I think Spinoza, too, is an atheist, Mm -hmm. but he's a little more difficult to read on that. Were they using the word atheism? No. Um, the only people who used the word atheism were their critics who accused them of being atheists. Mm. But the word atheist is a very vague notion in the 17th century. It just means somebody whose views on God and religion uh, are different from yours. I mean, they used the word atheist the way the word communist was used in the 1950s and 60s in this country. Um, you used it to um, denigrate your opponents. But, you know, for example, when Spinoza was, asked, or was accused of being an atheist, he denied it, but his denials were very cagey. He would say, well, I'm not an atheist because look at the kind of life I lead. And so what he meant by not being an atheist was I lead a moral life. Or on another occasion, when accused of being an atheist, he says, um, how can I be an atheist? Because I believe in the true religion. But what he meant by true religion was just treating other human beings with justice and charity. So, you know, the, the term atheism is very vague, um, and it's just thrown around as a, as a negative epithet.
1: Huh! I didn't realize that the history of atheism being a dirty word uh, stretched <laughs> back that far.
0: Oh, yeah, it was, um. the, it was the dirtiest. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: fascinating. You mentioned Spinoza. I want to turn to him next, because that's the next section of your book here, um, or the, large foc- the next large focus. Um, and you already mentioned that he's more extreme um, than anyone who'd come before him. So let's elaborate on that. Where does he fit in next?
0: Spinoza was sort of the great uh, radical philosopher of the period. I mean, even Hobbes who went pretty far in his materialism and in his views on absolute sovereignty. When he read Spinoza, he, his response is essentially, oh my gosh, I, even I wouldn't go that far. Uh, Spinoza, I, I think is of all the philosophers in the book, the most progressive and the most modern. Um, I mean, we, we say Descartes was a modern philosopher and all these guys are modern philosophers, but they weren't modern in the sense in which Spinoza was modern. Um, for Spinoza... All there is is nature, and human beings are as much a part of nature as anything else. We are subject to its deterministic laws. There's no such thing as miracles. There's no supernatural being. There's no transcendental deity. There's no divine providence. Uh, Human beings don't have free will. Uh, He also um, went so far as, and probably the first to really argue for this in a systematic way, He said, look, the Bible is just a work of human literature. It was compiled by many authors over many generations, put together under various political and historical circumstances. The book we have now has been transcribed over by many, many centuries, um, and it's just a collection of human writings and should be read like a collection of human writings, like a novel. And it's not necessarily a source of truth, not truths about nature, not truths about the universe, not truths about God. Um, if, it's, if it contains any truths, it's just a, a very good source of moral edification. The stories of the Bible, um, when read properly, give us good moral lessons. He also said that most of the organized religions, the the, uh, Judaism, Christianity, are or simply organized superstitions, and all their ceremonies contribute nothing to true piety. Uh, and finally, uh, his his grand project was to um, prevent religious and ecclesiastic authorities from meddling in the private and civic lives of individuals, that there's no place for this, that people should be free to think whatever they want, believe whatever they, whatever they want, and to say whatever they want. And so, if you really want to look for the origins of, of modern ways of thinking about nature and about human beings and about the state, um, I think Spinoza's your guy. He had a lot of good, good ideas. He did. <laughs> and, you know, he's. So, Ben. He, yeah. Oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say you know, uh, Spinoza's a hero to a lot of people, partly because of the, the difficulty, the kind of mystery of his philosophy, but also he was a rebel. He was excommunicated from the Amsterdam Jewish community as a young man, and everybody loves a rebel. <laughs> I like a rebel, do you like a rebel Ben? I like a rebel, sure,
1: so Ben, uh tell us a little bit about illustrating this section. You mentioned earlier that um uh you did a lot of research in regards to his tools.
2: Oh, well, I guess I was specifically referencing well, first of all, there's a lot of pressure to illustrate Spinoza when you're illustrating it for a, a Spinoza scholar. <laughs> Um, You you want to keep your dad happy. There's not a lot of wiggle room, but there's, I I know that we were balancing some biography in there too. We didn't just want to portray his ideas. So the setting of Amsterdam, the kind of, the kind of uh, synagogue that he's in, the specific type of rabbi that's excommunicating him. Um, because you can't just draw a rabbi. You know, it has to be. It, it well, has in this to, case it had to be a Sephardic rabbi. Right, yeah, has to be Sephardic. Um, there's a point in the book when he's lens grinding. So he's using this sort of unrecognizable lens grinding tool that even if you find an image of, um, it's not immediately clear how it's used. So you either have to guess by looking at it or try and find some old YouTube tutorials about how one would go about using a 17th century lens grinding tool. So we guessed. We guessed. Yeah. I think we did a great, <laughs> I think we guessed right. You know, it's ropes and it's wood and it's grinding and it's moving around. So things like that, it's, it's, it's not, it's one thing to find the reference and then you have to put it into its correct historical context.
1: Wow, that sounds like fun.
2: <laughs> but I mean, Spinoza covered so much ground in this book. It it was this I I'm not just saying this to
0: suck up to my dad, but it probably was the most fun chapter to illustrate. It just, you know, speaking of of rabbis and the way people look, um in an early chapter we had a couple of popes and <laughs> I looked at the drawings. I said, "Well, these popes all look alike. Yeah. They all look like the same guy." Yeah. And we went back, and sure enough, they
2: all did look kind of look alike. Well, because there was, I did draw a pope, and you said that's the wrong pope. You have to illustrate a different one. And when I looked up the one you wanted, I said, "I think we could leave it, and I don't think anyone's going to notice a difference."
0: <laughs> yeah, your pope, a pope. You're a pope. <laughs>
1: All right. Uh, next, we turn to the German philosopher Leibniz. Uh, he engaged with Descartes and Spinoza as ideas and then came up with the notion of uh, the best of all possible worlds. So please oh, yeah. tell us about him.
0: Leibniz is a fascinating character. He's probably the most brilliant um, and wide-ranging intellect of the century. He was all over the place, philosophy, mathematics, logic, history, engineering, politics, ethics, law. Um, he he wrote on everything and he wrote a lot. And there's still, you know, hundreds of years later, they're still trying to edit all these papers of his in Germany. Um, Leibniz's overarching uh, philosophical theme was a kind of reconciliation of both the Catholic and the Protestant churches, uh, philosophy, religion and politics. And he was perhaps the most systematic of all of these thinkers. And this notion of the best of all possible worlds is his solution to the problem of evil. The problem of evil is how do you reconcile the fact that the world was presumably created by a wise, benevolent, just, and all-powerful, all-knowing God with the apparent fact that the world suffers from a great deal of imperfections? It doesn't seem really to reflect these uh, characteristics of its creator there's there's death there's suffering there's their disabilities there are disasters tornadoes tsunamis um, young children getting stuck in caves in thailand um, how can we reconcile all this and so spinoza uh, Leibniz um argued that um god being all perfect all great and all powerful would only choose of all the possible worlds the one that is absolutely the best but he also argued that what makes this world the best, and we know that the world that we are actually living in is the best of all possible worlds, because if it weren't, God wouldn't have created it. But obviously, what makes it, the, obviously, liveness, what makes it the best is not that everybody gets to flourish and everybody lives perfect and happy lives, but that the best of all possible worlds must include some of these uh, things that we regard as imperfections, but from the grand scheme of things, these so-called imperfections contribute to the beauty of the world, the way he says in which shadows in a painting uh, help the illuminated part shine more brightly or how certain uh, dissonances in music help the harmonies shine, uh, come out more clearly. Uh, And so just because this is the best of all possible worlds, it doesn't mean there won't be any suffering. It doesn't mean that even all virtuous people will get to experience supreme happiness. But they make these little things, these tsunamis, these tornadoes, um, these um, disabilities, these genetic defects, all are necessary features of a world that is on the whole, if not the best for every individual, the best all over. And this is how we can say that God didn't. God doesn't will for these imperfections and sufferings, these evils. They're not, God doesn't choose them for their own sake, but God creates a world that in order for it to be the best world must have these little imperfections in it. And they're not really imperfections. They contribute to the overall perfectness of the world.
1: Okay. So Ben, (laughs) tell us about illustrating this section.
2: It's a lot to take in. Yeah, I take it back. This is the most fun chapter to illustrate. But I think this is our longest chapter too. Uh, you, you know, he had the he had ideas that were so out there, especially monads, which we can get to. But um, uh, he, aside from it, aside from trying to illustrate the idea of best of all possible worlds, which we chose to go with a beauty pageant for for different Earths. He had. Which was a, a nice touch, I thought. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, this is just where it starts to get so abstract with, when you're trying to talk about what God's
0: intention is. Well, you know, he, he, you're, the way you illustrated this notion of God choosing the best of all possible worlds is you had these little worlds out in a waiting room, as if they right. were auditioning, oh, auditioning for to God. Be the best of all possible worlds. So there are a lot
2: of opportunities for these these. These jokes, the more abstract these ideas got, the more we could have all this creative liberty with it. And I think you start to see visually things kind of go off the wall in this chapter.
0: (laughs) Well, Leibniz was a bit off the wall himself. Oh, oh yeah. It's funny then. One of my favorite panels. So Leibniz was um, in Paris for quite a while. And on the way back, he had to go home to Germany because his employer said it's time for you to get back to work here. And on his way back, he, he went through the Netherlands and he, he visited Spinoza. And one of my favorite panels, I thought, well, look, Leibniz is coming home from Paris. He should look exactly like everybody, every tourist who's ever been to Paris looks like. So we, we put a little beret on him. And in one hand, he has a baguette. And in the other hand, he has a little statue of the Eiffel Tower, which, of course, won't be built for another 200 years but that was a kind of um, anachronistic license we felt we could take. And if somebody complains that Leibniz couldn't have seen the Eiffel Tower, then they, sh- you know, they don't deserve to be this. <laughs> There's
2: a lot of anachronism. But this is where the most, this is where the biggest challenge of illustrating this book came with the monads, because we were it was trying to. Represent everything in, in little units. So we went through all these. I mean, you can try and describe monads.
0: Yeah, so monad is Leibniz's. It's a it's a basic item of Leibniz's metaphysics. He believes that all of nature um, consists in these collections of tiny little immaterial substances that he calls monads. And even bodies, while they look physical and extend to us, are in fact just the appearances. Of these immaterial soul-like substances, spiritual substances that he calls monads, and it's impossible to visualize. Yeah, how how are you? The challenge for Ben is how are you going to draw a monad? And I actually uh, sent emails out to various colleagues who also work in early modern philosophy and asked them if you were to draw a monad, what would you draw? And we got a bunch of interesting responses.
2: Right. What we ended up with were these little pink bubbles that are filled with. I guess the essence of of everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, Leibniz's metaphysics is really complicated, <laughs> but I, I think the book, uh, both in the text and in the illustrations, does a, as good a job as can be done of trying to take somebody who's I think arguably the most abstract thinker of yeah. the period, um, and providing a kind of introduction to the basic ideas. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I feel like I came away with something of an understanding of what monads meant to be. So, uh, so as I think, much
2: as you're ever going to, probably
1: right, right. So I think you had some success there. Um, the next section uh, takes us through the middle of the 17th century, and you kind of cover um, a few scholars because uh, various scholars and thinkers continued to grapple with these ideas—the intersection of the soul with matter. So, please tell us about. Henry Moore, Lady Anne Conway, and Nicholas Malabranch. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. So um,
0: Conway, it was important to to include a couple of women thinkers in this period and get away from that um, image of the 17th century as just a bunch of of old men sitting around constructing abstract metaphysical thinking. Um, Conway was interesting because she was engaged as well as a woman could be in the 17th century. They weren't allowed to attend the university. And yet she published sophisticated metaphysical views that engaged the ideas of Leibniz. Henry Moore was a Cambridge philosopher who was her tutor. Um, and they too struggled with trying to um, avoid the radical dualism of Descartes metaphysics of mind and body more um, believed that, um, and, and Conway, to a sense, followed him in this. That there are that there is soul everywhere, um, and Conway, I think, perhaps in a way like Leibniz, refused to eliminate spiritual substances from all of nature. Um, she and Moore and John Locke formed the kind of English side of things in the second half of the century. Uh, Malbranche was in France and was probably the most important representative of Cartesian philosophy, that is Descartes' philosophy in the second half of the century. Um, If if you're looking for a a bizarre philosopher, uh, I think Malbranche is probably going to be at the top of your list. He believed that because of the radical separation of mind and matter that physical bodies material bodies had no causal powers um and so whenever you saw one physical body causally interacting with another physical body what in fact you were witnessing was god moving things around and he also believed that human minds uh In the shadow of divine omnipotence, even human minds didn't have real causal powers. So when a human being moves his or her arm, um, really what's happening is that you are having a thought, but God is making the arm move. This is, I mean, it sounds like a crazy idea, but in, in light of the metaphysics of mind and body that Malbranche accepted and inherited from Descartes, it makes perfect sense. You have if you're really going to eliminate spiritual active powers from nature, you have to have an account in your physics of dynamic force. Where is the motive or causal power coming from if bodies are just extension, just three-dimensional space? And so Malburn said, well, it must be God who's moving things around. Leibniz, by contrast, and I think this is the same thing that motivated Conway. Uh, Leibniz believed that, no, you had to have these powers in bodies. Bodies had to be real causes of other natural phenomena. Uh, And so bodies had to have soul-like aspects to them.
2: And I think this is a good example of where the comics can help visually uh, represent each specific character's ideas. Because as you read the chapter... Um, you can notice that God is playing more of a part and is more of a physical presence along while Malabranchi is sort of describing
0: his role in how we uh, think and feel and move. Yeah, you seem to have a lot of fun with these illustrations. <laughs> with God um, acting like a puppet master. or yeah, Exactly. Um, Dominoes and film directing. And- right.
1: Yeah, that was a fun section, actually, because I could imagine that would be Um, it's, it's a pretty abstract thing to bring to life in, in a drawing.
2: Yeah. And, and even maybe if you looked at it without the words, you can
0: see that God is playing more of a physical role.
1: Yeah. It's a really strange idea. I have to admit.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that we also struggle with is how are we going to represent God in this book? Um, and, I guess it was an aesthetic and maybe also a, a philosophical choice just to go with the old fashioned old guy with a beard um, partly because that would be familiar, but also partly because that would be an, a, with, with, by portraying God as such a yeah. character, it'd be a good way to introduce some humor and even, you know, a little irony into various parts yeah. of the book.
2: And instantly recognizable.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Okay, so now let's move on to John Locke. Uh, He continued not only with these ideas, but he also returned to Hobbes' writing on the topic of the principles of good governance. So go ahead and tell us about him.
0: Yeah, Locke was an interesting character because he, um, on the one hand, he was committed to the idea that all human knowledge comes from sense experience. Um, And in this way, he was he would be opposed to most of the other thinkers we covered already in the earlier book. Descartes, Leibniz, uh, and others um, believed that there was a good bit of knowledge that was innate in the human understanding. And Locke said no, there's nothing innate in the human understanding. Whatever a human being comes to know over the course of his or her lifetime uh, is either directly derived from experience or uh, created by them on the basis of materials that they've gained from experience. Uh, And So this kind of radical empiricism, um, I think, too, represents one of the other modern strands of the 17th century. Although even Aristotle, going back to ancient philosophy, Aristotle believed, too, that experience, sense experience, was the foundation for all human knowing or the the origin of all human knowing. Um, In in the realm of politics, um, Locke... I think, had a more benign vision of the state of nature than Hobbes. For Hobbes, the state of nature was a state of war, and you needed the state, uh, the the covenant to create the state that will put an end to this uh, condition of war. Um, Locke has a more optimistic view of human nature, and the people in the state of nature for Locke um, are governed by these rational laws that they discover on their own. Uh, and the state is introduced not to remove them from a condition of war, but to give some authority and power and sanction to the laws of nature that people have discovered for themselves in the state of nature. And what you get in the end is a not a kind of absolutist state like you find in Hobbes, but something more along the lines of a classical liberal state whose role is simply to protect um, the property and liberty of the people who live under its authority.
1: Okay. So Ben, tell us about illustrating this section.
0: It was a
2: lot of fun illustrating Locke's ideas about how we perceive the world around us through our senses, breaking down color and and touch and smell um, a lot for a lot of opportunity to be very graphic and, and designy, um, which was a fun way to break up the more detailed historical drawings of, of buildings and books and and uh, and God and philosophers. Um, I got to have a lot of fun with this early science, um, and try and represent the way it it, it just gets gets so abstract here. I mean, now, now that I'm going through the book sort of page by page, I see, I don't know if we meant to do it, but the, the further along we get, the more things, get deconstructed in such <laughs> yeah. strange abstract ways. Well, this is the first,
0: you know, so much fun after the early discussion of Descartes epistemology at the beginning of the book. This is the first return to epistemology, but right. um it's you know, how do you illustrate uh empiricism? This notion that all all of our ideas come through the senses. Um and how do you illustrate the distinction between primary qualities and secondary qualities? Um, And so things do kind of fall apart because I think Locke is a very modular thinker. He thinks our ideas are complex constructs out of more simple and more basic ideas. And the world out there is also modular. It's a construct of more basic, simple elements like uh, atoms and corpuscles, which come together. And so things do seem fairly disjointed Mm -hmm. and deconstructed in this Locke chapter because that's what Locke was doing. He right. was breaking human knowledge down into more basic elements and he was breaking the physical world down into more basic elements. And then you have to somehow build it all back up together <laughs> and show how these basic elements come together to form mm-hmm. in the external world a very mechanistic world.
2: Yeah.
0: Um and in the human mind, um, the very complex superstructures of knowledge that we have on the basis of the more basic empirical elements.
1: And you mentioned, too, that uh, Leibniz was inspired to write a detailed response to Locke.
0: Yes, Leibniz wrote, um, so Locke had written a book called An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. So Leibniz composed his new essays on human understanding, which was essentially a point-by-point response, mostly um, objections, to Locke's book. Uh, And a lot of Leibniz's attention was devoted to refuting the radical empiricism, the notion that there's nothing innate in the mind before experience writes on it. you know, The mind, according to Leibniz, is not a blank tablet before experience. And he brought up very interesting examples of, of certain things that human beings know that couldn't possibly be explained if all of our knowledge came from experience. So for example, how do we know necessary truths, truths of mathematics and truths of logic, um, especially because a necessary truth is a truth that um, holds independent of what may happen to be the case in the world. Whereas all experience can tell you can tell you is what happens to be the case in the world. And those are very contingent things. So it, experience tells me that there's now a laptop computer on this desk and that's just a contingent matter of fact, there might not have been a laptop computer on this desk. Uh, on the other hand, I know, that 1 plus 1 equals 2 doesn't just so happen to be the case now that 1 plus 1 equals 2, but 1 plus 1 necessarily equals 2. And so how, how can I have knowledge of necessary truths if all of my knowledge came from experience? And that's kind of Leibniz's um, critique of Locke's radical empiricism. The trouble is that Locke um, died before Leibniz finished his book and Leibniz felt it wouldn't be fair to publish this book um, when Locke couldn't respond, so it remained unpublished in his lifetime. Hmm. There was an element of fairness even in these philosophical <laughs> debates; they were still gentlemen. Yes,
1: that's very gentlemanly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So next, we turn to mathematical heavyweight Isaac Newton. Uh, he describes the material words in terms uh, closer, I think, to what we'd now recognize as physics and refuses to make metaphysical speculations like those before him. So tell us about him.
0: Yeah, Leibniz's goal was not to speculate about uh, grand metaphysical causes, um, although he would often end up speculating on those things, but rather just to discover the mathematical laws that capture the basic phenomena of nature, like gravitation, uh, the forces of attraction and repulsion, um, why do things, why do bodies, um, you know, just take the most obvious famous case, why do bodies fall to the ground? Um, and what's relationship between the forces, the attractive forces that make an apple fall from a tree and the attractive forces that keep the moon in um, revolution around the earth and the earth in revolution around the sun. And um his, His claim was that, well, in fact, it is the very same force. The laws of nature uh, that govern terrestrial phenomena are the same laws of nature that govern celestial phenomena and was able to formulate uh, and demonstrate these laws uh, in mathematical terms. So the inverse square law of gravitational attraction describes um, with mathematical precision um, the attractive forces between bodies.
2: And I think it was really cool to get here because this is the math. This is, I mean, these are the facts. This is the math and science that we know.
0: Yeah. And the refusal to speculate on why bodies behave according to these laws or what's, you know, what is the cause of gravitation? You've given us the mathematical uh, formula that captures uh, the force of gravitation, but what causes the body to move to another? And that's where Leiden said, well, I don't want to speculate on this. Although he did uh, at one point say, well, it's probably God who moves these bodies together. Or on another occasion, he believed it was the action of this, of an ether, a very fine aerial substance, which was pushing bodies together. Uh, But for the most part, in what he would consider his scientific papers, as opposed to um, uh, scolia or um, letters, um, he was concerned only to provide the mathematical formulations of these laws and not the metaphysical bases. And, it, you know, he saw himself, it, by doing so, he saw himself as offering um, a new paradigm for science than Descartes. Descartes was an was a, a extremely sophisticated mathematician, but definitely not Newton's class. And the, the difference is that Newton, by the time he came along in the second half of the seventeenth century, um, had uh, formulated the calculus, which allowed him to actually engage in much more sophisticated mathematics. Descartes spoke about how the laws of nature have a kind of mathematical certainty and rigor uh, and necessity, but never really gave us um, much, anything more than fairly basic formulations of the laws that govern the collisions of bodies. Whereas uh, Leibniz, who corrected Descartes on the mathematics of these laws and Newton, went much further in that direction.
1: Okay. So Ben, tell us about illustrating this part.
0: This, I think this, this part felt
2: almost like a new job because it was the first time in the project I was illustrating concepts I was actually familiar with and made a little bit more sense to me the first time around. And it was really exciting to to put everything in the context to watch the philosophers interact with someone that I knew a little bit more about. Um, it's it's It also looks different to me because it's later in the book. Um, I spent about a year and a half illustrating this, and as I look at these new, the, the later panels with Newton and the later drawings of Descartes, who we started out with... Um, it looks different to me visually like I've been drawing these characters for a long time and and I know them in a way that I didn't before I redrew the first chapter of the book because by the time I had gone through the whole thing I couldn't even recognize the pages I had started with and that was a big challenge for such a long term project because you don't want to you don't want to notice any change in quality, even if it's, you know, whether it's a decrease or increase in the quality of the illustrations as you're reading a book, no matter how long it is.
1: Huh. That's an interesting problem. I would have considered, I can imagine what you're talking about though.
0: Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think in the end you did, it's, it's fairly consistent. And what always impressed me is about how those of us who aren't really artists, if you were asked to draw, a person uh let's say over the course of five days create a comic strip where the same character appears the real challenge is to make that character look the same <laughs> would you get more comfortable drawing them yeah yeah so it would change so you know in, in peanuts charlie brown always looks like charlie brown right. but it takes a while to get to that consistency well
2: if you look at early peanuts he it looks completely different
0: yeah giant round heads yeah and also ha- how if you even once you've got a certain face down, you have to figure out what does that face look like in profile or in quarter view or three quarter view mm-hmm. or how they look from behind. And so you really have to have a full character development of, of these guys who we only know through their portraits.
1: We see a similar kind of thing happen with The Simpsons, actually, now that you mention it. Yeah. The, the really early uh, season, I think, well, the, se- the first season and when it uh, was on that other show looks very different yeah, but then yeah. it stabilizes right as as of like season two well very-
2: uh, it's funny it, the initial drawing of the family is so crude because i know he, he 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 drew the family quickly in a waiting room while he was going in for a meeting but then even when they switched from hand-drawn animation to more digital the characters look a little bit different so yeah i mean that's that's 30 years of drawing the same family and um it's uh, you can't you can't keep it consistent it's just not really possible
1: Oh, that's fascinating.
2: You didn't know so you had a real Simpson skull. I yeah. could go on and on about the Simpsons, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, let's turn to the uh, the last section of the book now. Uh, you end with Voltaire's reflections on the great thinkers we've been discussing. Uh, so tell us about his thoughts and why you chose to fi- finish the tale here.
0: Well, we needed a way to, to close the book, and we could have ended with Newton, but then um, it, it just seemed to be... Um, an unsatisfying ending of it. Then then it just looks like we started with Galileo, he said this, and then Newton in the end said that, thank you very much. Um, (laughs) But I thought um, it might be nice to have a chapter that kind of sums everything up. And Voltaire, who was a great commentator on what was happening in philosophy in the century before, seemed to be the perfect spokesperson, um, both because of his... Um, his wry and uh, often satirical way of thinking of things, but also because he had so much in particular to say about Descartes and about Leibniz and about Newton that I thought um, even though there's a great chronological jump from Newton to Voltaire, you know, we skipped a whole bunch of other philosophers, uh, Hume, for example, and Rousseau and all these other thinkers, um, but I thought, let's use Voltaire as our kind of Greek chorus at the end um, to... use his comments on the philosophers of the previous century to uh, sum things up. So he doesn't, you know, he comes across as a, as a minor character here, but just a, sort of your, your just like um, Candide's guide um, through uh, Voltaire's story was uh, Dr. Pangloss. So here uh, Voltaire himself serves as our kind of um, guide towards what, just happened. Yeah, years. I love ending this book with Candide.
2: That's a that's a,
0: a fitting ending. Yeah, especially because it, it harkens back both to Leibniz's conception of the best of all possible worlds, yeah. and then you would close with Voltaire's remarks contrasting how the century uh, began with Descartes and how it ended with Newton, and that just seemed um, appropriate for the book.
2: Also, I didn't. I, I'm just now noticing that we open and close the book with the burning of the stake. Oh yeah, really? Did you know that? Oh, that's right.
0: Yeah. Huh. <laughs> what do you know? No, The, the illustrator was on top of it.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So, uh, just uh, to close here, I have a couple of questions for you guys, a couple more questions about the book. Um, in your opinion, which concept was the most challenging to depict pictorially?
2: For me, it was monads. Just trying to understand the concept at all was challenging. And I think maybe that's where we went through the most drafts and the most, um, the only time we actually pulled other people about some kind of visual representation. Yeah. Well,
0: Ben called me one day and said, dad, what the heck is it? Yeah. Mona? What is this? <laughs> it's a monad? How was to draw this thing?
1: That's I, fantastic. Um, were there, uh, were there so many funny examples emailed to you by colleagues that you want to tell us about?
0: Yeah. Well, a lot of people <laughs> threw up their hands. um, we got bubbles, we got circles. The thing about monads is Leibniz is fairly precise about what they are not, that they don't have windows. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out. Mm. Um, they're kind of transparent, but they reflect the whole universe. Uh, so we got mirrors. We got um, kind of like the uh, the disco ball mirror, you know, that big ball of mirrors. That's oh, pretty one's cool. Um, and then when I would go around and I ran into colleagues at conferences, I told them how we were going to um, – illustrate monads of course everybody's a critic and say, oh no that's not right and, and, <laughs> so i say well yeah you, you yeah. go illustrate your own monad <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh that's fantastic um so i'd also like to ask you what's the major takeaway you hope your book will leave with its readers
0: um, my hope is that it'll inspire them to go actually read the philosophers um of course after they've Purchased our book, <laughs> um, but you know this shouldn't be a substitute for going back and reading the philosophers. is a great deal of fascinating thinking. Um, in some cases, more accessible than others, but it's worth the trouble. I mean, this is the 17th century. Really, was where the the modern conception of of nature, of politics, and of human nature uh, has its origins. And I especially think that these days where um, maybe not in your country, but in our country, the so-called intellectual elites are being disparaged. Um, I think it's even more important that people get in touch with the history of philosophy and the, the importance of looking at things not through passion, not through prejudice and superstition, but through reason. And if this book can inspire people to take philosophy seriously once again and you know, ask the critical philosophical questions that we need to ask of the people who are controlling the world, then um, all the better.
1: Oh, that's really wonderful. Long live the intellectual elites. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well guys, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. I had a lot of fun talking with you about these ideas and the drawings. Uh, but before we go, can you tell us what each of you are currently working on?
0: Um, I have a, um, a book that's just about, to well, two things. Um, a second, I, 20 years ago, I wrote a biography of Spinoza. And you wouldn't think it, but in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of new research, discoveries, archival material on Spinoza's life. So um, next month, the second edition, an expanded edition of this biography of Spinoza is coming out. And then in the fall, um, I recently written a biography of Manasseh Ben Israel, who was a rabbi of Amsterdam in the 17th century, um, probably the most famous Jew in Europe in the period, and also responsible for initiating the readmission of, of Jews to England. So that's coming out with the Jewish Lives series from Yale University Press.
2: Uh, and I have a children's book coming out next year, an adaptation of a Grimace fairy tale called The White Snake, that uh, is coming out from Toon Books in the spring. So I'm just wrapping that up now, and then um, sometime in the near future, I'll be doing another book with Princeton about Socrates. That's in early stages though, so we will see.
1: So you've started a whole genre of philosophy comic
2: books. I guess so. Uh, You know, if if they keep asking me, I'll keep doing them.
1: That's excellent. Okay. I want to thank you guys again for being on the show. And uh, feel free to contact me and come back with any future books I'd love to talk about. Right. Well,
0: thanks for, so much for having us. Thank you. Me. Thank you. Pleasure.
1: All right. Goodbye. Bye. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Steve and Ben Nadler about their book, Heretics, the wondrous and dangerous beginnings of modern philosophy available on Princeton university press's website. And from Amazon, you can see more of Ben's work on Instagram, where his handle is at Ben Nadler comics. Did you enjoy this podcast? Please consider writing us a positive review on iTunes, posting about us on social media or telling a friend as a not-for-profit organization. That kind of buzz really helps us out. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. I'm also looking for a co-host for this show. If you think you might be interested, send me a message on Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. Let me know what you thought of the book. I'd love to hear it. Goodbye until my next conversation about New Books and Secularism. Thank mm-hmm. you.